Well, I have to tell you, he was the most powerful man on earth. I mean, this guy, he had the entire world in his hands, but he could not defeat the Greeks. So when his son, King Xerxes, became the king of Persia, he made up his mind he was going to be ruthless, ambitious, and defeat his father's nemesis. But he had a little problem. How does he convince everybody to go to war again after they lost the first time around? He decided to throw a banquet. And my, was it a banquet. For six months, he was whining and dining all the officials from all over the empire. His idea was, if I can show them how much wealth I have, how much power I have, they will follow me into battle. After six months of banquet, he decided to throw one little party for seven, for seven days for the people who lived in his winter capital of Susa. So for seven days, he whined and dined all the officials. And on one of those days, well, he had a little too much to drink. Actually, a lot too much. And so he told one of his servants, I want you to go and I want you to get Queen Vashti, my beautiful queen. And I want you to tell her, come here, because I want to parade her beauty in front of all these men. Well, when they went to get the queen, they didn't realize that she had a lot of chutzpah. And she said to them, I am not going to go there and be like a piece of meat in front of dogs. You tell him no. When they came back and told the king, he was embarrassed, first of all. How is he going to command an army against the enemy if he cannot even command his wife? And secondly, he was angry. She had broken the law. So he said to his advisors, what shall I do? They said to him, first of all, you've created a problem for every man in the kingdom. Now they see your wife disobey you. There'll be no end to it. They will all be telling us what to do next. First of all, banish her. Don't talk to her ever again. Find somebody new. And secondly, issue an edict that goes all over Persia, saying that a man is the head of his own household and women should do as they are told. What's your question? Do I agree with that? Let me ask my wife. <laughs> so he did just exactly as he heard the advisors tell him to do. But then a few years later, he was feeling kind of lonely. He didn't have a beautiful wife on his arm. What should he do? He asked the same advisors. They said to him, well, we have a solution for you, O king. Well, you need to go and round up all the most beautiful women in the empire and then send them away for 12 months of beauty school and make sure they're taught to be submissive. Then you test drive each one in the be royal bedroom and the one you like, that's your queen. He thought to himself, that's a good idea. And then I knew it was a bad idea because I knew it would involve somebody I cared very much for. And that is Hadassah. Hadassah was the most beautiful young woman you had ever laid your eyes on. I mean, she was flawless in her looks and in her figure. I knew she'd be taken to the king's harem. Poor Hadassah, when she was just a little girl, her parents died, leaving her an orphan. But fortunately for her, she had an older cousin, Mordecai. We call him Uncle Morty. And he took her in and decided that he would make her like his daughter, and he raised her up. Before she left for the harem, he said to her, Esther, you must now go by that name and only that name. You must conceal the fact that you are a Jew. Do not call yourself Hadessa. Don't do anything Jewish. Just be a good Persian. Speak Persian, act Persian, live Persian. Don't let them know and do as you're told. Well, she went. 
And what we didn't realize is how much chutzpah she had. The problem was her chutzpah was lined up in the wrong direction. She decided if she's going to be in a beauty contest, she's going to win that contest. She took her beauty and her ability to please, and she pleased herself. Now when it came time for her turn in the royal bedroom, well, I'll put it this way. She gave a royal performance. And you've got to understand something about the king. That guy was a playboy. He did not really understand what love really meant. All he cared was getting his thrills. And by the way, later on, he would be assassinated in his royal bedroom by rumor has it his officers because he was fooling around with their wives. So you know this guy's no good. Anyway, Esther, I have to tell you something. I'm ashamed of her. And the reason I'm ashamed of her is because, well, she's a child of the covenant, a child of Abraham. How could she sleep with a man who's a pagan and not even her own husband? It was her choice, you know. Well, her life was smooth now. She was uh, in a palace. Everybody waiting on her. Life was good. Uncle Mordecai would come down to the city palace gates and he would every once in a while try to check in to see how Esther was doing. And one time while he was there, he heard some rumors. He heard rumors by some officers that they hated the king and were planning to assassinate him. I wonder why. Well, he told Esther. Esther told the king. And the king ran an investigation and found out the rumor was true. And as a result of that, he had them impaled on poles in public. Made quite a statement. Don't mess with me. Meantime, they took Mordecai's name and they wrote it down in what is called the Annals of the King. About the same time, there was another guy. This guy's name was Haman the Agagite. That's a mouthful. He said, what's an Agagite? Haman the Agagite was related to uh, some people called the Ammonites. And the Ammonites, well, <laughs> they were our ancient enemy. They were the first to attack us and try to annihilate the Jewish race, Abraham's family. Read it in the Torah, Exodus 17, Deuteronomy tw chapter 25. It says that God would always be at war with the Ammonites. Well, Haman the Agagite, he was given quite a race. He was made number two in Persia. He became friends with the king. And this meant now that everybody, when they saw Haman, had to bow to him. Well, there was a little problem. Mordecai refused to bow to that man. And when word came to Haman, the Agagite, that Mordecai would not bow to him. He wanted to find out why. So they went to Mordecai and said, why won't you bow to him? And Mordecai said, I'm a Jew. And that made Mordecai, that made Haman angry. It brought up all kinds of things from the past. And he thought to himself, I'm going to kill that Jew and I'm going to kill every Jew with him. I'm going to annihilate, annihilate them, man, woman, boy, and girl, forever. And so he took what is called poor, they're like dice, superstitious man. He had them roll the dice to see what month the Jews should be put to death. Unfortunately for him, he would have to wait 11 months. Now he had to get the king to cooperate. That was not hard. He went to the king. He said, oh, king, I want you to know there's some people in your empire who refuse to obey your law. If you let this continue, then other people won't obey your law and you will have anarchy. Here, I have some money to give to the treasury to allow me to be able to exterminate them. The king said, I don't need your money, but please get rid of them for me. An edict was sent all throughout Persia. An edict said that on the 12th month of Adar, that the Persians were to arm themselves and kill every Jew, every boy, every girl, every man, every woman, and plunder their homes. My goodness, when that word went out, every Jew 
throughout the Persian Empire began to wail and to cry. And Mordecai especially, he tore his robes in the streets of Susa. We got back to Esther. Your uncle's very upset. She wanted to find out why. She sent a messenger. The messenger said, what's going on? And Mordecai said, I'll tell you what's going on. Look at this edict. You take it back to Esther and you tell Esther that she needs to go before the king and beg for mercy. Well, the man went to Esther and when he told Esther what was going on, she turned as white as a sheet. She said, I can't do that. The law says I cannot just barge in and see the king. I must be invited and it's been 30 days since he asked for me. That tells you what kind of love relationship they had. There's a man standing there with an axe. Anybody who approaches the king without invitation, if the king doesn't like it, off goes the head. You go tell that to Mordecai. Well, the messenger went to Mordecai and told him, and Mordecai said, you go back to the queen and you tell her that if she doesn't do this, her life is worthless. Perhaps this is the very reason why she's in her position. So the man went back to Esther and told her, and Esther find herself in a big crisis. What shall she do? Save herself or save her people? Suddenly she looked at the man and said, Okay, you go back to Mordecai. You tell him they gather all the Jews and they have to pray and fast for three days, day and night. I will fast and pray for three days, day and night, and then I'll go to the king. And if I die, I die. Three days went by. She got all her robes on, her crown on. She went to the palace room, and there was the throne, and there was the king, and the door was open, and she looked at him, and he looked at her, and, well, he was pleased with her. He extended his golden scepter. She humbly came before it and touched the end of it. He said to her, my queen, I am pleased in you. What do you want? I will give you up to half the kingdom. Don't believe it. She said, oh, well, I'm putting on a special little banquet tomorrow night for you, for me, and for your best friend Haman. I will tell you that. The king liked that very much. He told Haman. Haman was happy. Haman went home to tell his wife and family. And on his way, he went by Mordecai, and Mordecai did not bow, and it made him very upset. When he got home, he told his wife, guess what? I'm going to dinner tomorrow night, just me and the king and the queen. I'm the only guest. It's wonderful. Except that Mordecai won't bow to me. His wife said, well, I've been talking to your friends and we have an idea. Here's what you should do. In the morning, go see the king. Tell him that Mordecai is a problem. Impale him on a 75-foot pole. And then afterwards, when you know he's dead, you can go to dinner and be happy. How would you like to be married to a piece of work like that? Uh, Mordecai thought to himself, this sounds good. I'll go. The next morning, he showed up to talk to the king, but what he didn't know was that the king had insomnia the night before. And he called in one of his servants. And he said to him, I can't sleep, so I want you to read to me about myself. The man opened the book and began to read about the king. And he mentioned Mordecai, and the king said, Ah, did I ever reward Mordecai? The man said, No. Oh, I need to do that. You must reward your informants. So when Haman showed up, to ask for the death of Mordecai, the king spoke first and said to Haman, Hey, by the way, what should be done for a man in whom the king delights? Haman thought to himself, Oh, he's talking about me. I like it. Oh, he said to himself, Why don't you take a robe that you have worn and why don't you put it on that man? And why don't you take a stallion on which you have ridden and put that man on that stallion and then get one of your chief nobles to lead him through the streets and proclaim, This is what the king does for the man in whom he is well pleased. <laughs> 
King Xerxes said, you're a bright man, Haman. I like your ideas. I want you to go do that for Mordecai. I wish you could have been there. His eyes popped out. And if his jaw had not been hinged, it would have been on the floor. What a scene it was to see Haman leading Mordecai around in his robe on that horse, proclaiming this is what the king does to a man in whom he is well pleased. When he went home, he was like a whipped puppy. He told his wife. His wife looked at him and said, honey, you're a dead man. About that time, there was a knock on the door. The royal carriage was there, and, all whisked, and they whisked him away to the banquet. Visualize it with me. The king, the queen, and Haman. The king says to her, Okay, honey, tell me, what is it you want up to half my kingdom? Don't you believe it? She said, Well, I have to tell you something, dear. There's a very evil man. And this evil man has sold me and my people to death. The king stood up. He was angry and raged. Who did such a thing? And she pointed and she said, that schlep over there, Haman, he did that. That evil man, our enemy. This made the king very angry. He began to walk away and Haman, knowing that his goose was cooked, he jumped toward Esther to beg for mercy. When the king saw that, well, let me just simply tell you this, that the next day, Haman became a human shish kebab on the end of that 75-foot pole. Esther and Mordecai said, can you reverse your decision, king? The king said, no, the law of the Persians. I can't. I cannot reverse my decision. But Mordecai, I am putting you in charge now. You will take Haman's place. You can issue a decree with my seal on it. So Esther and Mordecai got together and they created a decree. It went throughout all of Persia. Every Jew has the right to arm themselves. And if any Persian attacks, they can attack the Persian and plunder him. Well, when the Persians saw that Mordecai was now a big shot, that the king had given them such freedom, they decided not to attack. And those who did, they were soundly defeated by the Jews. And that is why to this very day, we celebrate Purim to remind ourselves of how God used Esther to save the Jewish nation. Now, I know what you're thinking. What does this have to do with Christmas? You are about to find out. So what does the story of Esther have to do with Christmas? Actually, a lot. And to discover that, I want you to take out your sermon outlines. Those of you who are watching online can pull yours up on the screen as well. And let's walk through it together. Number one, question. Seems like a pretty simple question. And that is this. What was it that Esther was hiding? When you read the story or you hear the story, it seems obvious Esther was hiding her Jewishness. She was hiding her ethnicity, and that's true, but you've got to take it to a deeper level than that. In essence, what she was hiding was her identity, her identity as a daughter of Abraham, a daughter of the covenant. God had made a covenant with Abraham, which God said that he would turn Abraham's family into a nation and that God would bless all the nations through Abraham's family, from which eventually would come the Messiah that would save the world from its sins. And Esther decides not to identify with that. It's too risky. 
Instead, she fakes it and focuses her attention and her energy on herself. She has beauty, and she has the ability to please. And she uses that beauty and that ability to please in order to advance herself. She may have been flawless, outwardly speaking, but inside, she had some deep flaws. Sometimes people don't like to hear that about Esther because we have a a tendency to make her like a superheroine, you know, this woman that, you know, she's so courageous and so brave, and we kind of gloss over the fact that she had a choice. She had a choice. She could go along with the program, with the culture. She could fit in and please herself, or she could have stood against it. It would have been risky. Joseph had a choice. Remember when Potiphar's wife was trying to chase him down and commit adultery with him, and he kept refusing and ended up in jail for it when he was falsely accused by her of trying to rape her? Or how about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when it's either you bow down the golden statue or you go into the furnace, and they chose the furnace, or Daniel in the lion's den, or so many other men and women throughout history who have made those hard choices to do what was right, to stand with and for God. But of course, there are times in all of our lives, because all of us have flaws, all of us have flaws, when we make the choice that benefits us the most. I think about our students and the tremendous peer pressure that they face to be like everybody else and to compromise whatever it is they need to do to fit in rather than take a stand for what is truth or what is right and for God and for God's purposes. The wonderful thing about God however, is that God is a merciful God. And when we blow it, he gives us second and third and fourth chances. And he gives Esther a very unique second opportunity. I want to read to you what I believe is her conversion experience, if you will, in Esther chapter 4. Esther chapter 4, beginning verse 10. We have this dialogue through an intermediary between Esther and Mordecai. I want to pick it up. Then she instructed the servant to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without, a, without being summoned, the king has but one law. Notice she's saying, Mordecai, you ought to know this. You ought to know this law. And that law is that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. So we know that this is a, a, an arrangement. This marriage is an arrangement of convenience. There's no deep love here because if you really love somebody and they love you, you don't fear going into their presence. No law can stop that. So she doesn't know him any more than, than the first night that that she was in the royal bedroom. It's an empty, void kind of relationship. She's convenient because she gets to stay in the palace and she has an easy life incognito. Verse 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. In other words, Esther, it is time for you to quit playing the game 
and to take your stand with God's people and God's promise and be part of God's program. You can make a difference. It's time for you to forget about yourself. And I want to read to you what I think now is her conversion. Verse 15. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast from me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king. Then though it is against the law, I will do it. Even if I perish. She says, if I perish, I perish. And I want to suggest to you, those are the most beautiful words in the story of Esther. See, those don't sound beautiful. Those sound bad. If I perish, I perish. If I die, I die. To me, they're beautiful. Because what happens is, Chadesa, that's her Hebrew name, discovers chesed. Last weekend, we learned about this word chesed. It's a Hebrew word. And it's hard to translate, but it's a powerful word. It talks about a bone-felt deep commitment that one person has toward another to the point that they are willing to sacrifice even their own life for the sake of the other, though they owe the other person nothing. They're willing to do that because they care so much. And Esther finds her chesed. And in that moment, she identifies with being a daughter of Abraham. She identifies with God's program, God's promise. And she inserts herself and says, I am willing to be an instrument to save my people. I am willing to self-sacrifice. I will give my life up for them. And if it means that I die, I die. And suddenly, there's an inner beauty that arises in her that eclipses any beauty she had, outwardly speaking. Because the most beautiful thing in a person's life is when they demonstrate unselfishness and self-sacrifice. Would you agree? That's when, that's when a person is their most beautiful. It's when they're totally selfless. And so she became part of God's means of delivering his people. By the way, when I say God, I want you to notice, if you don't know this already, when you read through the book of Esther, all ten chapters, and I hope you will, you will never find God's name mentioned. But his handprint is all over the story. His providence, his control, his sovereignty is all over the story. For when God chose Abraham and said to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to make a nation out of you, and through that nation I'm going to bless all the nations because you will deliver the truth and you will deliver the Savior to the world. At that moment, Satan and the spiritual forces of this world came against God's promise to try to destroy it. I mean, think about the history of the Jewish race and how many times have others tried to annihilate them and destroy them and they always survive why because God made a promise and God's going to keep that promise to bring deliverance and God kept a remnant and to this very day has kept a remnant faithful to himself and that remnant has been made up of people like Esther people who were flawed not perfect who were given second and third and fourth chances to get with God's program, so to speak. Abraham was flawed. Guy had a hard time telling the truth when it was critical. Took matters into his own hands. 
His son Isaac was flawed, couldn't tell the truth. Jacob was a deceiver. Moses had an anger issue, murdered someone. David, we know, committed adultery and murdered someone. I mean, if you look at the people that God used and worked with, well, they all had some pretty serious flaws. And you know what? I'm thankful because I've got flaws too. How about you? And if God can only use perfect people, we're all in big trouble, aren't we? See, God gives us second and third chances to get, to get right with him and to, and to take our stand and to pull away from ourself and to pull away from our sin and to pull away from the culture and say, I'll stand in the gap, God. I will help you. I will partner with you in fulfilling your promise to this world. So this is really God's story. He has God working through an imperfect woman named Esther to save a nation. And in that sense, Esther does save Christmas. Because if she doesn't step in, Jewish race is annihilated. And God chose her and God worked with her and she stood in the gap. And that's why we have Christmas today. Are you willing to stand in the gap? Are you willing to join me and to join others and say, you know what, I'm not going to live for myself anymore. So I'm coming up on a series, One Month to Live. What would you do if you knew you only had one month to live? And I hope you'll stop by the video booth and tell us. We'd love to hear it, especially from some of you younger folks. I'd like to know that. If you had only one month left to live, how would you live your life? I hope it wouldn't be selfishly. I hope you would pour yourself out in self-sacrifice for what really matters. Are we willing to pull away from the culture and say, you know what, I don't want to be identified with the culture. I want to be identified with God. I want to be identified with God's true church. I want to be identified with God's promise and make a difference. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for the life of Esther. What an amazing woman. And I thank you so much, O God, that you specialize in taking some of the most dysfunctional people, some of the most fault-filled people, and just radically transforming them and using them. And we see you do that in Esther's life. Father, she goes from being this self-centered individual to this person of courage and confidence. She becomes a leader of leaders because she chose to separate from the culture identify herself with you and stand in the gap God I pray that for me I pray that for myself I pray that for Whitdale Church that God you would help us to come apart from the world and from our selfishness and to stand in the gap and identify with your promises and identify with your love for this world. And Father, be willing to sacrifice our lives that the chesed of God might be made known to those who so desperately need it. In Jesus' name.